0: Oh, hello and welcome to Intune Pathways, the podcast. This is the place where we explore autistic identity, culture and family lifestyle. I'm your host, I'm Christy Forbes. I'm a late identified autistic woman. I'm an educator. I have ADHD and I am a PDA autistic. If you're not sure what PDA is, it stands for Pathological Demand Avoidance. Ooh, we'll get into that in future episodes. I'm also a parent of autistic children and my passion is shifting away from the medical disorder narrative and into a newer awareness and radical acceptance of the social model of disability. Thank you for joining me. All episodes of the Intune Pathways podcast are recorded on Wurundjeri country. The Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people are the traditional custodians as part of the Kulin Nation. I pay my deepest respect to Elders past and present and at Intune Pathways we are committed to the amplification of First Nation voices and decolonization in our work. Sovereignty was never ceded. This country always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today I'm speaking with my colleague and really good friend, Kieran Rose. Kieran is a published mainstream and academic author, an international public speaker, trainer, researcher, and consultant to organizations all over the world with a specialization in autistic masking, autistic burnout, and autistic identity. Kieran was diagnosed autistic in 2003 and is dad to three neurodivergent children, two of whom are autistic. Kieran and I have been friends for a number of years and we've worked together in many different areas, but the amount of conversations we've had around our own personal experiences as autistic folks, I honestly couldn't count. Today we're talking about behaviour and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, everybody.
1: Welcome. I'm Christy and everybody knows that, but this is Kieran. Kieran Rose is an autistic advocate over at this page, The Autistic Advocate. Would you like to tell the friendly folks a little about what you do, Kieran?
2: Yeah, I just don't post on my page very much. That's a warning if you ever go over, but that's usually because I'm busy doing other things. I'm a consultant and trainer and speaker, and I'm currently writing a book, which is why there's no activity on my Facebook page whatsoever, because my head is in Microsoft Word at the moment. So that's me.
1: Let's talk about autistic behavior. Ooh, okay. So we thought we might have a chat about behavior. Have we talked about this before? We've covered a lot of topics in a lot of
2: different... I don't even think we... uh, I think we've touched on it, but I don't think we're specifically focused on it.
1: Okay. So I think the first thing that comes to mind for me when we're talking about autistic behaviour is that it is not the same as non-autistic, non-functional behaviour or dysfunctional behaviour. And I think it's painted that way a lot of the time. So... When we look at the therapies that are put together for autistic children or early intervention, we love that language. Generally, what forms the basis of a lot of behavioural therapies, positive behaviour support, is this unspoken idea that the way that we behave as autistic people, particularly in childhood, is the same as dysfunctional or non-functional, non-autistic behaviour. So someone would look at an autistic child and a non-autistic child, and if they did the same thing, we'd believe it meant the same thing. But the reality is it means one thing for the autistic child and a different thing
2: for the non-autistic child. It's just heavily pathologized. And we keep coming back to this idea, when you and I talk, we keep coming back to this idea that when you look at the diagnostic criteria and when you look at how people are viewed, that there's this ideal perfect human being that acts in a perfect way they move in a perfect way they think in a perfect way when we measured up against that we obviously can't meet that so we fall flat and they've decided this is how we fall flat and behavior is one of those things it's a huge amount of bias massive amount of bias because there's an assumption that because a particular group of people behave in a particular way and because they're the dominant majority, then they're right that what they do is the right behavior, that they act in the right way, that everything they do is wonderful and brilliant. And if you deviate that from it in any way, you're dysfunctional, you're broken, you're acting out, you're misbehaving. And a lot of the rules that we have in place reinforce that. A lot of the social rules that we have in place reinforce this notion that there is a right way of doing things and a wrong way of doing things. When I mean, actually, if you take a step back and you look at diversity everywhere... Animals, plants, whatever, anywhere in nature, there is not only a diversity in terms of how animals or plants or whatever look, even though they're part of the same species, there's also diversity in how they behave and the things that they do. There's not uniformity everywhere. That's so right. why shouldn't there be uniformity amongst humanity as well? There shouldn't be.
1: Yes, exactly. We have talked about this, actually. I think it was just the other day we were talking about this. But a classic example is rocking. So, you know, for many autistic people, rocking is a way that we move our bodies. But even in saying that, it will mean something different for so many different autistic people. And not every autistic person rocks either. But we have this, um, it's really hard to stay on topic when we're talking about anything to do with autism, because there's so much interwoven history and pathology. But when we look at trauma as an example, for a really long time, and I know even now, many clinicians will rule out autism if there is a history of trauma, because the understanding was for a long time that trauma would mimic autism. And if we look at a physical behaviour as an example, rocking is a great example. So most people who don't necessarily have an understanding of autism but would probably have an understanding that a traumatised person will engage in rocking. Maybe a child, even animals, will engage in rocking if they're traumatised. However, we understand that a lot of autistic people rock as well. And it doesn't necessarily mean that a person is distressed or upset or unhappy. A lot of people rock because they're experiencing joy or happiness. It is soothing and calming and regulating. Some of us uh, might rock ourselves to sleep. I'm one of those people, so I will rock myself to sleep in a very repetitive kind of way on my side. And I do that because the minute I stop rocking. I feel this physical sensation throughout my whole body like pins and needles. And it's it's like sensory input. It's very, very soothing. So I guess that's just one example of what would be considered a behavior that would have different purposes in people. I think
2: part of the problem is that when anybody talks about behavior, usually it's a negative context. We don't think about behavior is also a neutral and a positive thing as well. You, know, you could argue that everything that people do is a behavior of some sort on a very basic level. So when you do have that idealized image of what behavior should look like, and then you have someone who maybe expresses what you deem as a negative thing, you automatically assume it is a negative thing. And it's the same with result trauma, as you mentioned there. Trauma amongst neurodivergent people can express itself in a very different way than how it can express itself in non neurodivergent populations. And um, like masking is a perfect example of that, because once you get beyond the code switching and everything that everybody does is human behaviors. When you get to the extremities of autistic masking, when you're adding stuff to that, all of that is fueled by trauma. Yet for a non-autistic person, you're looking at a traumatized person, but you don't see the trauma because they're acting like you, that is the trauma expressing itself. So wrapping your head around that is quite a complex thing, quite a difficult thing to process, especially when you come from that kind of non-autistic, non-neurodivergent perspective, because you only have your own frame of reference for what trauma looks like. Yes. And if you're looking at a marginalized group whose voice isn't listened to and you're, through your privilege and whatever, you're not listening to them, you're only ever going to apply your personal perspective and your frame of reference to their existence. And that's why we end up with the problems that we do.
1: Absolutely. And it's not just about trauma. It's like you were saying, it's behaviour in general. And I think yeah. you're talking about a global and international, this collective understanding around behaviour. And let's focus on children, because this is where the main focus is. How much of what we've come to understand as good or bad behaviour is just social and cultural conditioning? Because You know, it wasn't that long ago that I heard somebody who's been in the media in Australia for a really long time talking about childhood behaviour actually say to the camera, You know, I've come to understand that we've got it really wrong with young children and the way that we look at behaviour when we're using reward and punishment to address behaviour or respond to behaviour. And I just thought, Thank God, thank God. People with influence are starting to say this, because just because a whole heap of people think one thing, it doesn't mean that it's right. And this is half the battle with neurodivergent families, going out into public and our children having a moment, or our child, or even us having a moment where we need a break or we need to step out or we can feel that we're going to have a meltdown or I don't know what it feels like for you, but I can feel a meltdown building for a while. And for me, I know that if I don't remove myself from the situation, it will happen. And it's like an out-of-body experience. I can't guarantee my behavior. I can't guarantee what's going to come out of my mouth. I can't guarantee what I'm going to do with my body. And I'm a 41-year-old woman, so I've had a while to work out that when I need to get out of there, I need to get out of there. And, you know, I have a toolkit. Children don't have that. They don't have, they're not afforded the right to autonomy either. So if you take, as an example, an autistic child and put them into a classroom and you as a family have taught them this is okay to do when you feel like you're going to have a meltdown, you ask the teacher if you can step out or you grab like what I'm using right now, um, a fidget or whatever it is. Sometimes the children are going to be in a situation where other adults are not going to allow them to employ or implement tools that they need to, to be okay, because Their reference point for understanding behaviour is aligned with predominant neurotypes, which is a child who yells and screams and thrashes about on the floor is having a tantrum or is being a brat. I don't believe there is such a thing. I don't believe there is such a thing in a neurodivergent child or a non-neurodivergent
2: child. Yeah. And uh, it's it's funny because I was going to bring up meltdowns actually and this correlation that there is a societal ideal that a meltdown is a tantrum that the two are synonymous there's no distinction between them and unfortunately i do see many parents that think the same as well but quite often when you dig into what they're thinking is they don't actually think it it's stuff that they've picked up from teachers peer pressure societal pressure all of those kind of things and quite often what's really really common is I took my child to the supermarket and they had a meltdown. Everybody was looking, people were tutting and they were giving me and automatically, especially in parent groups, when you see someone post something like that, automatically the first response is usually, oh, I'm so sorry for you. That must've been embarrassing. And, you know, why don't people, why don't people just accept and stuff like that? And actually, you're thinking there's a child having a trauma response in the middle of the floor and who's getting the attention and who's getting that, oh, I'm so sorry. It's the parent who was embarrassed by other people tutting you know there's an argument to say if your child's prone to doing that don't take them to the supermarket in the first place (laughs) that would be the first thing like i would never ever take my children to the supermarket unless they wanted to go but secondary to that the child's kind of forgotten in all of that as well and it's kind of sometimes it's picked up on a bit later and i think that's why lots of autistic people on the internet struggle with the parent narrative because you know that's not the parents fault that they're receiving attention for what happened they're the ones that posted They're the ones that are looking for a bit of support and rightly so, they deserve a bit of support right? because it is embarrassing and it is awful when people are judging and tutting and stuff like that. But the child is forgotten amongst all of that. And if they are remembered, it's usually, oh, they're in sensory overloads or they were misbehaving or whatever. And it's diminished and undermined that they're actually traumatized. (laughs) <laughs> it's not a controllable response. I mean, what you were saying before, it's the same for me. I'm Alex Thymex, so I struggle to recognise when I'm getting to the point near a meltdown. You know, I've got things in place that can remind me, and if I'm around people that I know generally, like my wife and stuff like that, they'll pick up the signs that I am anyway. I might always not always believe them. But <laughs> there's usually some kind of physical thing that I can connect to, to think something's not right, so I need to remove myself. But you're right, children don't have that. And especially if they're alexithymia, it's really difficult then for them to even be aware that they're getting anywhere close to melting down and losing control. But when you do have that moment, it is not a behavior. You are not choosing to do that. It's not something like I'm stamping my foot because I want the sweet. And when someone gives it to me, I will stop. That's a tantrum. That's manipulative. That's a child doing something to get a response. But a meltdown is just an uncontrollable. Yeah. Your head's mounted, your brain's popped, and that's it, you're gone. And quite often, there's kind of two trains of thought in terms of... Many people say it is a kind of out-of-body experience. You're aware of what's going on, but you've got no control over it. It's a bit like helicopter viewing yourself and dissociating. But other people don't even remember. It's gone. Yeah. Like, and then they open their eyes, and there's just this devastation around them. And they don't even know what's happened. And that in itself is traumatising as well. But again, it's like, if a school you know, oh, you've had a meltdown. We'll go out of the class for 10 minutes and then we'll bring you back into exactly the same environment where nothing's changed. And then they wonder why it triggers again. It's it's just so pathologizing.
1: It is. And going back to the supermarket example you gave, I think what's really difficult there too is for families when they're in that situation or when we're in that situation and our child is behaving in a particular way, It takes a lot of consistent practice and working on ourselves to get to the point where you don't feel bombarded by societal pressure in that moment to turn on your child. And I know that so many parents would experience that in the moment where they'd feel this unspoken judgment and pressure from the energy of people around them looking and touching and eye rolling and staring and so in that moment particularly autistic parents or unidentified neurodivergent parents who are vulnerable are likely to go along with the status quo. I mean, I know that was me for a long time and feel really annoyed with our child for putting us in that position. And then we get in the car and turn on ourselves and feel awful all the way home and Mm -hmm. live with that forever. You know, that we knew it wasn't their fault in that moment. We knew what was going on. But Mm -hmm. the, the compounding energy of judgment in that moment forces people to respond in ways that they don't want to respond. And I think a huge part of that problem is, again, that society just doesn't know enough, understand enough about our children and how they respond to people, places and things. And adults, when we're adults, we get to choose. We get to say, I'm not going to do that thing because it causes me to feel A, B or C or actually, I don't do that because it's not for me or I really am very challenged in this area. So I try not to put myself in that position. Again, children don't, they don't have self-awareness until, I mean, non-autistic children are usually at least six years old before they start establishing that sense of awareness. And we're on our own timeline of development as autistic people. So it takes us longer than that that it has the communicative skills, particularly if they're non-speaking or situational mutism or even if you're hyperverbal, we still struggle under moments of stress and de-stress to communicate. Mm. We can't say, I'm feeling nervous, I'm feeling anxious, I want a break, I need to leave. It's going to come out like, I want to go home now after no warning sometimes so those times where we expect children to be able to tell us that they can't do something they won't be able to do something that this is too hard or they need a break it's actually unreasonable to expect our children to be able to do that
2: but then it's wrapped up and painted as challenging behavior Yes. Blame is focused on the child in that regard. I was doing an online conference earlier in the year and one of the speakers was, really struck me actually, was talking about a memory that she had from childhood where her parents had taken her to the seaside. And as they got onto the beach, it was like a vast expanse of beach and the sea was like quite a away and they'd walked down. And she said there was this chair, this wooden kitchen chair, like a dining table chair, just sat at the shoreline, literally just sat there. And she said she didn't know whether it was the the light coming off it, the shadow, or the fact that it was completely out of context that there was a chair there. But she said she was terrified by this chair. absolutely was distraught over it. And she melted down. And it went on and on. And her parents couldn't figure out what was going on. And she couldn't communicate it. And then it got to the point where her parents just basically picked her up and they went home. And she said what always stuck with her was her dad saying, you spoil everything. Mm. and i wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and that line is there in my head but it's so true from the parent perspective who's not understanding their child yes the child is spoiling everything but from the child's perspective she was scared Mm. she was in trauma and the parent didn't recognize that and invalidated her undermined her experience Yes, maybe took her away from the experience, but there was no explanation of what was going on. There was no conversation about what happened. It was purely seen as bad behavior. And that, you know, and then in modern context, as I said earlier, this is now called challenging behavior. And when stuff like this happens in schools and in homes, this is where we're talking about restraint and seclusion and isolation booths and these punitive punishments that children are now put through. Children and young adults are put through. Because the people that have power over them have no context for what's happening. So they just make assumptions based on their personal bias.
1: Yeah. Gosh, that brought up some stuff for me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for triggering you. We should no. have got trigger warning at the
2: beginning of this.
1: <laughs> no, it just brings up memories of actual teachers at high school knowing that I would not be able to respond or react to particular things and using their power to bait me or to antagonize me. Mm. And then if I reacted, I would be sent to the principal's office and I would be punished and That's not me not taking responsibility. That's me saying I was a neurodivergent teenager with no coping skills because I didn't know I was neurodivergent. Nobody did. And there really do exist educators and adults in many fields out there who take advantage of that. So I think as families, it is really important that we honour our children's neurodivergence and arm them with. Language, even if we're teaching them to script. You know, I did this growing up naturally, actually. I knew that there were particular situations that I would have trouble moving through because I might freeze, I might become mute, I <laughs> might become aggressive. I got to know particular situations that I was challenged by. And so I would have written down responses that I could use, I would script responses. So it's important for us to be aware of that for our children as well. I mean, it's sad that we have to prepare our children to go out into a world where they won't be understood. And you and I talk about this. We always mention this because this is so important. We are privileged. Our privilege is that we are white. And us talking about the difficulties of us sending our children out into a world that doesn't understand them has got nothing on other people like the black autistic community so many other communities pockets of the autistic community who have so much more to deal with than we do when we're sending our children out into the world that doesn't yeah. understand them.
2: it's terrifying when you look at the diagnostic rates amongst uh, particularly the black community of not just that they are missed for being autistic But actually the things that they're diagnosed with are literally things around challenging behavior. It's like it's an expectation that black children are acting out and are being defiant and it's horrifying. The rates of diagnosis of things like oppositional defiance disorder and stuff like that amongst the black community are huge and out of comparison with autism diagnosis and ADHD, I think ADHD is a little bit more prevalent, but the disparity there is ridiculous and it is around this societal notion of it's racism it's blatant racism that if a child is active if a black child is not doing what they're supposed to be doing if they're not conforming then that's negative that's bad behavior and you can see how that travels through into adulthood and things like that and then rates of arrest and police profiling people and stuff like that you can see how that happens it's obvious to me how that happens and it all comes down to blatant racism at the heart of it that they're looking for behavior and seeing it deliberately as negative yeah
1: my goodness
2: got 30 comments
1: oh yes please tell me you
2: forgot we were live didn't you did i yeah i did yeah, yeah. I, I,
1: like I didn't pick my nose or anything
2: <laughs> <laughs> joe says the medical model of autistics and pda needs to be binned. yeah absolutely agree with that one She also says, normalcy is a social construct that is ever-changing and is also an unattainable myth. Yet we are seen as abnormal as we don't meet this imagined normal yardstick.
1: This is why I hate social skills
2: training, because the goalposts change all the time. It's so elusive. Definitely.
1: And what Joe was just saying, it's something I thought about before. Because you do not identify as PDA autistic. I do, and I think, too, there is, and I am going to talk about this because I think it's really important to talk about, there are people in the autistic community that refuse to accept that PDA is a thing or that it exists. And when we're talking about behaviour and presentation, expression, autistic expression, the thing about a child who has a PDA expression of autism when they are behaving the way they are, which is different to a non-PDA autistic, and for those who aren't aware, PDA stands for pathological demand avoidance. The anxiety is so extreme that I say to families, when a child is swearing, grabbing knives, whatever they're doing, no matter how extreme the behaviour, that's a panic attack. That is a panic attack. And yet we keep calling it aggressive behaviour or challenging behaviour or problem behaviour or concerning behaviour. And yes, okay, it's all those things, but there is always something underneath that. And we know for media autistics that anxiety is extreme. That is panic. When a person feels so out of control that they're grasping for those things, that's at the height of a panic attack.
2: Sorry, continue on. No, 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 I agree completely. I think it's a really important distinction because we haven't done any public talking about PDA really. Mm. And I probably at one point would have been tarred with the don't believe in PDA kind of brush, but it's never been about that for me. We've talked heavily about this, Christy, haven't we? And it's always been about the narrative around PDA and how misunderstood and how the public narrative of PDA is very different to the private narrative of PDA. And from an outside perspective, that's really confusing. And I can see how people have made leaps that well, BDA just doesn't exist because you're describing my experience, but that's usually because there's a lot of context missing from that experience as well. And I think to the conversation about behavior, it's so important because although the word pathological was in the name of BDA, behavior of PDAs is really pathologized, overly pathologized as challenging behavior. And really, again, we're talking about extreme anxiety, trauma, all of those kind, but expressing in a different way. I mean, in the UK here, there is an organisation called the Challenging Behaviour Foundation. And there's this whole narrative around violence against parents. And that's not to say that that doesn't happen, that it does happen, that parents have been attacked and things like that. But it's taking away from the whole trauma response of what's happening and the anxiety response of what's happening and it's focusing on the parent as the most important one in that situation when in actual fact quite often usually sadly the parent is very much involved in why that situation happened and the negativity and the lack of understanding and all of those things and I've often said that parents are out of a school environment or out of a work environment our families are usually our biggest triggers especially when they don't understand what's going on. That's not their fault. That's because they've been fed narratives that cause misunderstanding. And it's such a complicated beast and nobody really is to blame for it. But if you're going to cast blame anywhere, it's the gatekeepers around narratives, professionals, charities, people with power, people who have the ability to change things, but don't. And I think that's where all these narratives get bottlenecked behind money and people holding on to their theories and all of that kind of thing. And then at the bottom of it is us and our families who get impacted the most, but get the least proper support. Sorry, there was a lot of in that, wasn't
1: <laughs> it? This is interesting. I want to say this and I won't be specific for legal reasons, but so I was contacted by a television station in Australia who are doing a program on ADHD soon and i shared my experience and they came back to me and said we hope you can understand but we're actually basically what they said is that they are prioritizing people who don't know as much about ADHD as i do and yeah yeah which is so bizarre and i was left thinking and i am going to respond to them but all i was left thinking was I really, really hope that I just have this gut feeling that this is what it's going to be about. We're going to have a television program again, an open discussion or forum about neurodivergence. We're going to get a group of people who identify or have been diagnosed with ADHD in this situation who don't know much about it. We're going to have them there. And then we're going to have medical professionals who are going to do the telling and the talking about ADHD. While these people are going to sit there and just agree with it and go along with it. It's going to be painted in a really negative light. And that makes me feel really cross. It makes me feel really cross, not because ADHD is wonderful and rainbowy and we should celebrate it. It's not that. It's that we are telling people that they shouldn't be celebrating who they are. We are telling people who they are. We are telling Parents that who their children are is problematic and needs to be fixed and changed. The language that we use, early intervention, we keep having this burden, challenging behaviour, broken family, divorce rates, negative narrative perpetuated by the media. The media are to blame for so much of what society thinks neurodivergence is, because when we think about images of autistic children, children trapped behind glass walls, ADHD children who are on commercial television current affair programs whipping the foam out of their parents' couch cushions, and you know, it's not about them coming back and saying, "We want you to be a part of this," but we're only going to ask you if we can't fill the spots for the people who aren't self-aware or who have a negative narrative about their diagnosis that's problematic that's discriminatory it's ableist so wrong
2: it's also controlling
1: extremely controlling
2: what you've described there is basically a tv program that says this is the narrative that we want to project and we're going to exclude people who don't fall into that narrative so that's not an honest portrayal of Anyone who's ADHD, it doesn't, it's not representative at all. It's just literally a controlled narrative, which confirms the negative narrative around ADHD as well. It's confirmation bias, creating more confirmation bias. That's all that's happening there, And that's disgusting. People will make money off the back of it. It's like the Netflix show, the relationship thingy. I haven't watched it yet. And I deliberately haven't watched it because I read a few reviews and I thought, I know exactly what this is. I've seen it before. Even things down to like this plinky blonky music when the autistic people come on the screen and, you know, it's a dating show. So let's get their parents in and talk about their sex lives. You know, you don't have that on a dating program, do you? No neurotypical human being would go on a dating show and let their mum and dad talk about their sex life. So why is it okay for it to be about us?
1: You know, they infantilize their subjects and they are huh? subjects.
2: They but are. They know. are literally specimens in a jar that people are observing. That's what's happening there. There's nothing good or right about it. There's no reality. It's not reality television because there's no reality to it. It's contrived and controlling. And that's, that's the kind and of thing. It's disguised
1: that. as being inclusive and it is exploitive. And the worst part about it, I mean, it can't be the worst part about it because there's so many yeah. things about it. The dating expert was a non-autistic person coaching autistic people how to date. And I watched the reactions from the people Google Gogglebox watching the autistic people dating and it was a whole lot of, oh, they're cute. So infantilizing, really, really awful, really awful stuff. Anyway.
2: I sometimes wonder if we are constantly mildly traumatized because of our sensory difference and living in a world not designed for us
1: Yes
2: Yeah, I'd agree with that I think the increased focus on CPTSD is so, so important because we suffer micro traumas constantly pretty much every minute of the day is a micro trauma especially when you are around other people that are not autistic We could be seen as being quite disparaging towards non-autistic people, but quite often it's an unwitting process that happens. We're invalidated, undermined, our needs are dismissed, our sensory needs are dismissed, and especially when we're children, what you were saying earlier about, you know, like, I need to get out of here. The most common response to that would be, sit down and shut up. You'll be okay. It's not that bad, you know? Don't worry about it. It will get better. And that's invalidating when you are someone who is in a sensory response of pain or overwhelm for something that somebody else can't hear or see or touch just because they don't see or hear or touch it. They dismiss it because they've got the power and you haven't as a child. We don't teach our children to say no. That's really, really important thing.
1: We especially don't teach our children to say no when we engage them in behavioural-based therapies, yeah. compliance therapies, because the whole premise of those therapies is to change a child's no to a yes, yes. to punish them if they don't go along with what the therapist wants them to do. Mm-hmm. So that's a good start to not go down that. Uh.
2: Leah Black, when my daughter was first diagnosed, I was so baffled by the fact that these professionals were telling me her cute little child's stims of flapping, twirling X were abnormal. It literally blew my mind. How is a behavioral reaction that a lot of people do abnormal? I understand now, but at the time I really got hung up on it. Yeah. Again, it's that invalidation. It's absolute invalidation of human behavior just because it looks a little bit different.
1: It's such ignorance. Inside of ableism is classism, racism, genderism. That's why we say autistic rights are human rights.
2: I've just read a comment and I got really offended just for a second and then I reread it and realised I'd read it wrong. Chantelle says, I'm in a relationship with an NT. We aren't doing too baldy. And I thought she was talking about me just for that moment, but I think she means badly. So (laughs) (laughs) there was a flare there of... You will not criticize my head. (laughs) But it wasn't my editor or anybody else's. (laughs) Jennifer, I feel so bad. We thought our 13-year-old had anxiety. With anxiety, you work with clients to push through their fears. So you want to help expose them to their triggers. That has just been our approach. We're just learning now to stop. His main trigger is getting into the school buildings. We used to make him push through upsetting environments. Anyway, we had an idea... Years ago that he was autistic, but he presents like he's not autistic. He finally has been diagnosed and I feel we were so blind on how to love him better. We've traumatized him by treating it like anxiety and defiance. What can we say to help besides apologize and change?
1: Oh, I, my heart goes out because I I was that mum. I had my children in ABA therapy and in another life was a trained ABA therapist. So look, I was very controlling and made so many mistakes with my children and You know, I think it's beautiful that you've been able to recognize this and learn this. A lot of families don't. And I think it's so wonderful that as a family, you now have the opportunity to make amends and move forward. And I think sometimes it I don't know whether there needs to be a sit-down apology but it's in our actions as well. Yeah. We can be sorry and we can say sorry, but I think moving forward, we do differently. And I mean, it sounds like that is happening and that, that makes my heart expand inside my chest. I know it's sad for the person who's written it. What was their name? Sorry. Jennifer. Jennifer, we are all products of the environment we're in as well. We're all doing what we believe is best at the time with what we know and what we have. And when we're surrounded by, you know, we move in circles where we're told to, to push our children through. That's a basic human thing, isn't it, Kieran? I mean, at school, you can't do your shoelaces up or you can't do something. You're told to try and try. So we think we're doing the right thing. So I think intention is everything. And I, I think it's very lovely that you can now move forward as a family and do differently.
2: Yeah, I think it very much depends on what your child is like in terms of whether they might need an apology that might help them. I apologize to my children a lot when I do something wrong because it's an equality thing, I don't see a hierarchy in our house. I mean, there is to an extent, obviously, cause I'm a dad and they're a child, but I take ownership of my mistakes. I feel for my children, it's really, really important that they see that I own my mistakes whether that's with yeah. them or with others, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a kind of, that you have to subjugate yourself or anything like that. I just think it's important that through positive action and new understanding that you all talk together, moving forward. We realize that we made mistakes. We're not going to make those mistakes again. That doesn't mean we won't make mistakes in the future, but we're going to do it together and we'll work through it together. And I think that makes a really strong family the unit.
1: Yeah, and it's an ongoing evolving. Yeah family conversation sorry i just realized that it sounded before like i was saying don't bother apologizing just show it in your actions (laughs) what i was saying is not just apologizing but also being consistent with you know change
2: yes what's the best advice you can give a parent whose child may receive an as uh, an autism we don't really do asd uh, on our channels but you know that's just a language thing. Um, ADHD diagnosis, I want to do best for my son who's eight and our family. I'm really enjoying learning from you and I empathise with Jennifer about anxiety. Best advice we can give a parent who may receive an autism or ADHD diagnosis?
1: Yeah, so if we, we might just explain why we don't use ASD. And for me, that's because the D stands for disorder. And we say that with gentleness and absolute respect. I think it's just more culturally respectful to autistic people if we use language that doesn't imply yeah disorder even mm.
2: that. Yeah. yeah this is sarah that's made the comment so just to explain when i was reading that you saw me trip over my words when i got onto that point and that's literally because i stopped and was like i can't even say that because it's triggering for me so things like asd d stands for disorder c condition in clinical terms, condition and disorder mean pretty much exactly the same thing. It's all othering, it's all negative, and it's all pathological terminology, which does not describe who we are. We don't have a condition, we don't have an illness, we don't have a disorder. This is a neurological difference. And that brings with it strengths, weaknesses, challenges, not so many challenges, varies from person to person. Can you to
1: person you maybe speak for yourself I'm pretty much perfect <laughs> I could probably lose me diagnosis if you don't hardly
2: <laughs> sorry that was really to go back to Sarah's question best advice you can get for someone who's got a child that's probably going to be diagnosed
1: first thing connect them with autistic mentorship and peers we often hear professionals saying to immerse your autistic children with non-autistic children to learn social skills however that others them And amplifies their difference. So, if you imagine, if you can imagine being an autistic person and only having non autistic people around you, it really accentuates how different we are. And if we don't have peers to be able to relate to, we begin to believe that there is something wrong with us. So, for many of us, it's not until we form or find community with our autistic peers that we feel normal for the first time in our lives.
2: Yeah. And be very careful of that social skills narrative as well, because it's designed to normalize us. It's designed to make us appear not autistic. It's designed to make us fit in, which for some perspectives, that might feel like a good thing, but it isn't necessarily a good thing. It's really important for autistic kids and ADHD kids to understand why non-autistic and non-ADHD people are behaving the way that they are. So just to understand that narrative of why they do the things they do. But it's really important that they don't take that narrative on for themselves and feel like they have to act that way or are made to act that way because they have their own way of socialising.
1: Oh, yeah. And the other thing about having a child identified as autistic is let go of everything you think you know about parenting in order to be open to a completely new experience.
2: How do you push back against people who think that it's just bad behavior or bad parenting and want to deny a diagnosis?
1: I think this is a process. I think there's a starting point, and that is we sit with the discomfort within ourselves because a lot of the time it's about us being uncomfortable with being disapproved of, feeling like we will be isolated or an outcast if we don't take on board everything everyone else is saying. And I think it takes practice. And somebody was asking me inside the member's site the other day for ITAS, how do you get started? And I often say to families, just by repeating yourself. So if I were to say to you, Kieran, we don't speak about our children in their presence, and you continue to do so, I might feel terrified inside and full of anxiety, riddled with anxiety, but I would slow down my breathing and I would say, we don't speak about our children in their presence. And if he continued to do it, I would continue to repeat myself because then it would just get awkward and weird and embarrassing. So I think repetition and like I was saying before, sometimes we can have scripts, we can sit down in a safe space on a weekend or something and have a really good think about what would feel comfortable in terms of responding to those people and having a script and practicing it. But also over time with practice, what happened for me was it strengthened my relationship with myself. So I started to feel more confident and more empowered and Also knowing in the back of my mind that my loyalty is with my child. I am their parent, their guide, their protector. And so I'm modelling to them as well how to self-advocate. So when they see us doing that, they learn to do that for themselves.
2: No, I completely agree with that. It's that shift between them as a parent advocating for your child and a child advocating for themselves. And that, that transition is really, really important. That doesn't mean that there'll come a point where you're not needed because as a parent, children always need their parents. Even when we've grown up, we still need our parents. And um, we still need that support and that love. And sometimes we do still need them to talk on our behalf as well. But what Christy said about repetition, reinforcement, but also knowledge as well, knowing your stuff going out and finding information which is useful to you and pertinent to you so that you're confident enough to be able to say it and say it with authority as well. And all those things do come with time. You can sit here and say, oh, we just stand up to people, but it's not that easy. It really isn't that easy. And especially because of power dynamics. Again, this isn't just neurodivergent people. So many people form when they're in the presence of professionals because we've been conditioned to accept what they say because they're experts. So you kind of, you become a child and they become an, an adult. So it's really, really important to just arm yourself with as many tools as possible and just keep gently pushing and gently pushing and gently pushing and it will come, it will change.
1: And another thing for me was with school or with the kinder or daycare, if we arrived to collect our girls and their educators would straight up say, Oh, this happened and this happened. I kind of nip that in the bud by saying to them in private, when I arrive to collect the girls I would really appreciate you speaking positively about their day in their presence here's a communication book anything else goes inside the book I take it home and I read it in a private moment and I choose how to address that with my child at home yeah yeah
2: I completely agree with that I think that's So important. I mean, even putting aside the not doing it in front of your child and things like that, but that also gives you the time to go home and process it. Yes. And to think about the context in which might have happened to frame a positive response back. Because when you are told things like that on the spot, your child did this, 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 and this today, they'd be really naughty. They were really negative. Again, it's that power dynamic. You do become the child in that point, or you become defensive, usually one or the other. Well, it's not celebrating
1: who the child is. It's having a primary focus on what's gone wrong.
2: And in the process of doing that, disempowering both the child and the parent as well, it's completely messed up.
1: I was about to say it would be like my husband coming home from work and walking in the door and I tell him all the things he's done wrong, like, you didn't take the bins out today, you left your dirty socks next to the bed. But I do. I do do that. I'm guilty of it. (laughs) Right, We might need to finish up (laughs) soon.
2: Let's finish up with not being very professional.
1: Sorry everyone.
2: Thank you very much, everyone.
1: Bye. Bye.